Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Nafiz Ahmed, an award-winning systems theorist and multimedia journalist with Vice and Guardian, and communications strategist for over 20 years, and now part of the Rethink X research team. We're going to be talking about his November 2021 blog post, The Next Economy, why the growth and degrowth debate misses the point. Uh, welcome to the interview, Nafis. Thank you, Malcolm. Now, this is interesting. And uh, I'm, a, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that your, the title for this blog post uh, really doesn't do it justice. Because to me, uh, your blog post is kind of a nice summary of the argument that's laid out in the book by Tony Siba and his, uh, I forget the other co-author, uh, but Rethink Humanity. This is, I mean, it's really about how technological disruptions, they don't just disrupt uh, industries, they disrupt systems. And then how we respond to the, that disruption determines whether the civilization we're in, the country we're in uh, flourishes or perhaps does not. And so the, and I want, is that a fair summary of, of your blog post? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. Um, I think we're dealing with this reality that the, the, the relationship between technology disruptions and societal change is actually quite different to how we often perceive change. You know, we have this idea that things happen slowly, things take a lot of time. Um, and certainly, it, it, you know, in, in many respects, that, that, that is the reality of societal change. But then there is the thing, the, these technology disruptions which take place, which can literally change everything. Um, and it's that intersection of how that happens, how rapidly that can happen, how comprehensively it can happen, that I think is often very counterintuitive. And, and, you know, we get used to... Um, you know, we get we get used to the stasis or the equilibrium or the or, or the slow change, and as a result, we we forget about how how quickly certain types of change can happen as a result of these types of disruptions, and how that can actually you know overturn a lot of the dynamics that we're familiar with that we tend to say well these are things that are constants these are things that are how these are things which are always defining the economy or always defining society and actually they're not they're variable. They are subject to change. And I think it's being able to try and identify, you know, what are those things which are actually not constant? Because maybe something, you know, maybe there are some things which are more likely to be, okay, we can, we can, we can suspect that certain things may be around, but there are other things that could, could change very, very quickly. Now, before we get into the discussion of your blog post, I want to make a, a, a explain why I'm so interested in this. And it goes back to the mid eighties when I was a, a graduate student at the university of Saskatchewan, a history major. And I took a, an, and I had to take one of, one of my classes was an historiography. 
So the study of historians, historical method. And I chose as the topic of my paper uh, for that class, Arnold Toynbee's A Study of History. Now I had I never met, never run across Toynbee because I didn't do a lot of European history, but he does world history writ large over you know, recorded history of time. And, and, and he, he describes the ebb and flow, the rise and the fall of civilizations. And, it, and he pulls out those common threads. So I see this squarely in that tradition of analysis, for starters. Now, the second thing that the reason why I'm interested is because I do literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews with energy and climate experts all over the world, Asia, Europe, and North America. And, and I talk to executives, I talk at the very high level, macro level, I talk to, you know, entrepreneurs and folks down at the, at a micro level. And I'm always looking for ways for to structure the information that I'm taking in all the time, so that I can make sense of it. And I can make try to make sense of it for my readers and my, and my viewers. And as to date, the rethink x model of disruptions disruption to systems and disruption to civilization makes the most sense to me i'm not saying it's perfect I'm not saying it's a catch-all for everything but it makes the most sense to me and so that's one of that's why i wanted to talk to you today and i'm really looking forward to our conversation absolutely me too well good stuff well let's let's talk about how we shouldn't take the status quo for granted and you made the point in your introductory remarks that that uh, you know civilizations have organized themselves uh, to produce and to, and how we we live together differently over the millennia, over hundreds of years, and the, those change all the time. And so the status quo that we live in now will change. What drives that change? So this is a very good question, and I think it's obviously one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves in these challenging times that we're in. Um, and I think in terms of what drives change, I mean, obviously there are many things, but I think, you know, at Rethink X, we are focused on the role of technology. Now we're not suggesting that every single change can be reduced to technology. And we don't think that that's how um, we, should, we should frame this, but we're, we're saying that our focus is, on this, is understanding this interplay between technology disruptions and societal change. And I think one of the most, the crucial insight that we see, especially in, you know, you mentioned the book, uh, Rethinking Humanity by uh, Tony Sieber and, and, and James Arbib. And I think one of the most profound insights of, of that book really is, is how in every major civilization, there is this very clear pattern that emerges which is that there are kind of fundamental kind of civilizational capabilities to do with the production system of a society. Those are the things that we consider foundational to the economy. And we've identified kind of five key sectors, you know, there's materials, there's energy, there's food, there's transport, and there's information. Now, those uh, sectors are foundational because changes in each of those sectors not only impact across those other all those other sectors but they you know they fundamentally uh, kind of transform all the different elements and subsectors in your 
in your economy and in your society. They have these huge effects. Now, they're not the only important things in a society. Societies consist of governance, they consist of values, they consist of ideologies and worldviews and lots of different organizing structures, which so we also recognize that there are, you know, we call it the organizing system. But the production system is where the technology stuff takes place. So, you know, that's an important kind of nuance to remember. You know, we're not saying that every all change is only to do with, you know, it happens in technology and that's the end of it. No, actually, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. But what I think the, the key insight we're saying is that when you, when you grasp that connection, you realize that so much of what we're looking at in the organizing system has these complex links with what's happening in, 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 in the production system. And that changes in the production system can completely transform the rules and opportunities in, in the rest of your society. Let me provide an, a recent example uh, from a, well, an example from a recent interview I did uh, with Bill Russo of uh, Automobility. We were talking about the different type, how electric vehicles are viewed in China versus uh, the rest of the world. So in China, uh, so Bill's argument is that uh, China has become a digital society and the, the, uh, smartphones and apps and those services that are provided through them are, organizes uh, and allows uh, Chinese citizens to interact in a way that we don't in the West. They're digital natives and, and digital uh, nativeness, if I might say that, uh, coin a word, uh, is their fundamental, one of the fundamental organizing principles of Chinese society. And they expect that of their automobiles of their transportation options. And so what that means is they expect that a car, an electric vehicle will be an iPhone on wheels and all the apps that they use in their, that organize their life and live their life will also work in the car and they'll use their digital assistant to roll down the window or, you know, whatever it is. And then, and the car becomes an extension of that culture. And that's a very, it's a foreign idea here in, in North America and, and, and in Europe as well. But it, it shows that interplay between civilization, between culture and, tech, and technological change. Anyway, just a short illustration. Well, that's really useful because I mean, I think, I think, one of, I think the key thing that we're, we're, we're really interested in is, is, is really how rapidly you can upturn the status quo based on things that are happening in, in the production sector. Um, and that's where, you know, when we come to this growth degrowth idea that I had time to try to address in my article was really looking at, well, a lot of the ways that we see the world, a lot of the ways that we understand economics today is all based on us, based on the status quo system. So even the way we look at growth and degrowth and that whole debate um, is actually very much constrained by the, the, the current structures of, of the system as it stands you know so we have if we look at the production system today um it's 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 actually intertwined and i think the kind of the the, the court the court the, the suggestion i was trying to make really with with, the, with this post was that when we envisage what's happening right now and our argument is that every single one of these five foundational sectors is currently experiencing a disruption. You know, we've discussed, you know, you're familiar with some of them in energy, we're talking about 
um, solar, wind and batteries. In um, food, we're talking about precision fermentation and, and cellular agriculture. And in transport, we're talking about electric vehicles, um, but you know, or, or not just electric vehicles, but also autonomous electric vehicles. And then further, this idea of transport as a service. Um, and then you know, we've all, already seen the disruption in information, which is continuing in many ways. And you know, the, there's all the intersections in these different areas. We have, we're seeing a disruption in materials, um, and and so on and so forth. So everything. So all of that is changing. The entire productivism is going through this massive transformation, and as a result of that transformation, it means that a lot of the assumptions we have about how growth is going to work, or how you know relationships between producers and consumers or and between labor and capital all of those things which fit in a certain way in, in the current status quo economy that's all going to that's all going to change dramatically um and it's very difficult to to anticipate exactly how but one of the key things we can see is that we're moving into a world which is much more networked there's a, there's a possibility space for decentralized ways of doing things and in fact a more networked and decentralized organizing system is the one that really, you know, that's the way that really optimizes some of these disruptions that are taking place. I, I want to, uh, another uh, example from my journalism that I think is relevant to the comments you just made. And th this comes around electric transportation. And there are, you know, your deep growth versus uh, eco-modernism or growth uh, uh, paradigms. So the degrowth is a planned contraction of the economy. We can't keep we can't keep using up the Earth's resources. We're we're going to run out. We're we're you know we, we can't uh, reduce GHG emissions if we keep growing like this. And then the eco modernism is the technological innovation will allow us to decouple economic growth from this endlessly expanding material footprint. So the, how that plays out in in Canada in the electric uh, trans or in the transportation debate is on the one side you say we got to get rid of cars. You know, people who live in, they just, we, we can't just substitute an electric vehicle for an internal combustion engine vehicle. It doesn't, it doesn't fix con congestion. It doesn't fix sprawl. It doesn't fix all of these other problems. And then you have the folks who just say, yeah, 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 we're just going to electrify everything. It'll be great. We'll just, you know, we'll do exactly what the other folks are worried about, which is substitute an electric vehicle for, uh, for your, uh, for your gas powered sedan. I argue that what's really emerging here <clears throat> is a new family and personal and I guess business transportation model. There are now so many cost-effective electric uh, means of electric transportation from uh, electric bike to scooter, to small electric motorcycle, to electric vehicle, to soon we're gonna have robo taxis, we're gonna have automated shuttles, we're gonna have our usual public transit, you know, light rail or subway, whatever it happens to be. There will be so many of them and they will be so cheap and so convenient that people will, will reconfigure how they get around. And everybody has different transportation needs. So instead of trying to just cram everybody into a subway and saying, hey, we solved the problem, you give people choice, you give them options, you give them efficiencies and cost savings, and now we, we, we get around differently and we transport our goods differently. And that, I think, that debate illustrates, if I understand you correctly, illustrates what you're arguing. That's right. That's right. I think, I think what's happening is that, again, we, you know, people are looking at these disruptions from the standpoint of the old system. 
And the old system has got its kind of binary bottlenecks, right? That, that there is it's either this or that. But that those problems that we're seeing are, are part of the old system. And what we're not recognizing is that as the disruption of transport unfolds, it's creating a completely new type of transport system in, in much the same way that imagine we were trying to discuss the future of cars if, if from the framework of people who were used to thousands of years, you know, as we were, you know, using horses. It would be completely, in, in, a, in hindsight, you know, that would be a ridiculous and absurd discussion to try and plan and predict how the transport system with cars would look like when you were, if you were looking at horses and looking at the dynamics, well, it would, you wouldn't have understood it at all. And in a way, that's what we're seeing. But the difference now is that we have some really useful tools and modeling methods where we can, you know, we can't predict everything, but there's certain parameters that we can predict. And one of them, of course, is the economics. And then the economics of, of what's happening tell us that, first of all, electric vehicles are on track to, be, they're already, um, at that point now where you know they're they're competitive with internal combustion engines and they're you know we're past that uh we're past that uh, kind of bifurcation point we're going into uh, it's it's already you know going to go cheaper and cheaper and then we've got the uh, you know autonomous vehicle possibility which is coming very soon and both of these of these things combined are, are going to have these disruptive impacts on how we do transport and i think you know, when we, we you know, when, when when the rethink rethink X team did their modeling on this on rethinking transport, the report we put out a few years ago, um, you know, one of the big insights we found was that actually, you know, the more you, you go down this disruption and you, you know you're watching the the costs come down and everything else, it becomes um, it becomes so cheap that private, you know, even without the autonomous uh, disruption, just electric vehicles, they become so cheap that you don't you know owning a car becomes more cumbersome and onerous than to just order you know just to order it as we you know as you know at the moment we have uber and we have other kind of services but other methods of organizing transport will become cheaper as opposed to private ownership so there, it, there won't be um so the private ownership of cars we we predicted is going to dramatically diminish it's going to and there's going to be several stages the ev disruption is going to see a diminishing of private ownership uh, as the cost comes down. And then when the autonomous technology comes through, and that's likely to happen when electric vehicles become a lot more ubiquitous and the kind of the various lower levels of autonomous driving are kind of, you know, you get more and more of those cars out on the streets and eventually there's going to be all the interconnections between those different cars you know, it will be a giant information field of learning, a, a kind of self-reinforcing learning cycle would get into play. And that will accelerate the, 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 the trajectory of the autonomous disruption. And basically when that happens, that will take out a further cost, which is, you know, the, the cost of labor um, that you have. Um, and so the cost will plummet. Um, and so our prediction is just from looking at the economics of this, private ownership of, of, of vehicles is just going to is going to hemorrhage. It's going to go down dramatically. Now, what replaces that could be a diversity of, as you said, um, that, you know. But but we see that the overarching model is, is, is we're saying is transport as a service, where people will, in various different ways, um, organize how they can get access, and that there could be uh, that you know there will be privately run services. They may be public, publicly run services. 
there could be a, a variety. And as you said, there'll also be you know, tons of e-scooters and all sorts of things. So that tells us that when we're moving into this scenario, if we're going to have less vehicles on the road than we had before, then actually the demand for minerals and, and raw materials that people were worried about isn't going to be, it's going to be a, it's going to be a fraction of what we have now. So that's going to completely change that equation when it comes to, oh, you know, how much, you know, and it's also going to change so many, it's going to have so many other cascading effects in terms of what's going to happen to car parks, what's going to happen to all the, you know, the, 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 you know as you mentioned, urban sprawl, all, all these things are going to be totally different. What's going to be the opportunity space with you know, pollution levels will suddenly not be an issue now because we won't have polluting cars on the street. So there'll be lots in the same way that the original the you know, internal combustion engine revolution changed everything. The new transport revolution is absolutely going to, it's going to change how we design and understand our, our urban environments. I want to provide another example of what you're talking about, of transformation. And so I mentioned my graduate work and my thesis was on the transition from power from horse and steam to power farming in Saskatchewan, 1900 to 1930. So what you find in the 1920s in the in the local farm press is the farmers having this very intelligent very far you know insightful conversation about what happens to our society when we have these efficient machines tractors and combines and trucks and and cars and so on what happens to it because if you have a horse you need a quarter section of land which is 160 acres when you have a tractor, you need 320 acres, to uh, two quarters, to make it economic. And if you're really ambitious, you get a, a bigger tractor and you need three quarters, or you need a full section, 640 acres. Well, all of the, every time you do that, you displace a family from a farm. So what happens to all the little towns? What happens to the schools and the churches and, the, and all of that? And, and what they talked about in the 20s is... 100 years ago is now the reality in Saskatchewan, where you have the, the, the countryside is basically depopulated. You have 3,000, 4,000 acre farms that are run by these huge $500,000 tractors and you know, other, other machinery, soon to be autonomous and soon to be electric, no doubt. And you know, people drive you know, 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers to get to where they're, you know, go buy their groceries in the nearest regional hub. So their society was absolutely transformed and it was transformed by the 1980s, the 1990s. These trends were all, were all in effect. And it seems to me that that is a little example uh, of what happened then is going to happen now. And we, we can only guess at, as you said, we can only guess at how this will all play out because we're in the very early stages. This is like 1918. In, in terms of the other transition, but th that is that seems to me to be the, the direction, the general conceptual direction we're headed. Yes, I think so. When we're looking at these kind of past cases of disruption, gives us it's obviously the things that happen they're not going to happen now. But I, what you're saying is, is that when we look at the pattern of disruption in the past, that gives us an insight into how disruption interplays with these different areas of society and can change so many different things and I think what I think one of the you know I think one of the important takeaways from this is really that 
a lot of a lot of the problems that we're seeing now, a lot of the problems that we project into the future in a linear fashion, you know, because we're we're looking at things from the framework of the old system. We're saying, well, this is going to continue incrementally like this. And it's going to get really bad, or blah blah blah. A lot of those things just can't. They aren't going to happen. Like for instance, I mean, with with the green revolution and and the farming and everything else that you know the big big green revolution in 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 the early 20th century there was this fear that you know the the, the fact that you had something like 70 percent of the american population were farmers what what's gonna what's gonna happen you know these people are gonna lose their livelihoods with you know mechanization of farming you know all this kind of stuff and it didn't happen. And, and you know, the, you know, obviously, I think, I mean, you look look at the number of farmers then, the number of farmers now, it's something like less than 1% of the American population are farmers. But America is producing more food than it ever did then. And you have, and, and you don't suddenly have vast swathes of people who are unemployed. And that's because of, again, you know, we, they were, we, when we were looking at it from the past, we were trying to understand through the lens of the past and through the lens of the incumbent industries at the time. And I think that's that. So the, the lesson that we're trying to kind of really hit home to, 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 to people and our colleagues you know, around the world is that let's not use the lens of incumbency to understand these disruptions that are taking place now, because that means that we're looking at things that are very narrowly. We can't see the possibility space that's emerging. So I want to finish up our conversation with uh, on two points. When we'll, the first one will be that the that the future that we're talking about uh, is not uh, uh, guaranteed. This this is not written in stone. Choices have to be made, and they have to be good choices. Secondly, that if we make good choices, then we have the opportunity to build the kind of society that you know, almost seems utopian from where we sit now, clean, prosperous, and so on. So let's talk about the first one. The, if we make the decisions we make over between now, or let's say between now and 2050, seem to me to be absolutely critical, mission critical. If we make poor choices, if we, if we don't, if we inhibit disruption, if we build new systems or we don't build new systems if we try to shoehorn the disruptions into the existing systems and make them make an ill fit then then we might see in fact uncompetitiveness decline in this society i mean i look at the united states right now compared to what's going on in china and china seems to be the model i mean democracy and you know governance aside uh, china seems to be headed in in the direction where uh, you know it it will it will emerge as the dominant economy in, in 20 or 30 years, the dominant international economy, and the U.S. is in trouble, uh, many parts of it. Uh, so what, what's your take on your insight into the decisions and the choices that we have to make as a civilization? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so sure about um, the future of China in that respect. And I think, I think actually a lot of, I think, so what we know is that the economics of these, these disruptions taking place across these five foundational sectors, and, you know, and our research is focused on energy, transport, and food, um, but, but you know, information and materials, you know, it's, these disruptions are now underway, and in the next 10 to 15 years, um, you know, by, that, you know, by 2035, 2040, 
we're looking at these technologies becoming around 10 times cheaper than incumbent technologies. They are going to disrupt the existing incumbent status quo. They, they are going to disrupt them. They're gonna, they're gonna, the existing incumbencies have no chance because of this economics. They are, they are going to be eviscerated. Now, that's, the that's an economic reality. Now, what we do with that reality, it, you know, that depends on us. So for instance, we could do, you know, let, we could break that down into two very simplistic uh, choices. Of course, there's complexities in there, but you know, the, 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 the first most positive choice would be to say, this is what's coming. So our task is to accelerate these disruptions, to maximize and distribute the benefits of those disruptions and to organize our society so that we can really optimize that distribution and those benefits. And that means embracing them and rethinking all our organizing structures. You know, what's the best way of organizing and mobilizing around a, a you know, decentralized clean energy system? How, you know, what, what, how do we deal with, um, you know, what, what's the system that works with uh, the capability to produce proteins so cheaply um, and locally? You know, global design, local implementation, um, collaboration, networks, participation, all of these kind of words kind of give us a sense of the possibility space that we can move into. But what happens if we don't do that? And in many cases, we see that there are ill-conceived policies, there are efforts to resist, um, there are regressive approaches, you know, even the Russian invasion of Ukraine can be seen as part of this old way of thinking and doing things, you know, land grabbing, you know, propping up um, an oil, you know, oil and gas infrastructure through militarism that's the old way of doing things and of course there's the danger is is that if, if if all of our societies wanted decided to go down that kind of road then what we'd end up doing is we couldn't stop the disruptions because that economics is going to unfold but what we could do is we could delay them we could slow them down um, and also that puts us in a situation where if we're propping up industries which are economically obsolete and you know, this isn't a theoretical idea. I mean, we're talking about, you know, if we just look at the oil and gas industries as a, the conventional energy generation, and we did a big report on this on on you know the levelized cost of electricity and how um, existing um, agencies have overestimated um, how cheap the the current cost of electricity is in in, in these things. I mean, what we've found essentially is that these agencies are uh, these not these agencies, but these industries. Sorry, are basically projecting all of their future returns on the basis of, of kind of very cheap electricity costs, which are not, which is not true. Um, and what we're finding is the costs are actually much higher and it's not being factored in. And at the same time, you've got trillion dollar subsidies coming in every year to kind of prop these up. Effectively, these industries are really bankrupt, but they're being sustained through these massive subsidies. So when, once we have, once we realize how economically obsolete all of these things are, and if we imagine we're, imagine we're throwing all of our efforts into propping that up, propping up something which is fundamentally unsustainable, not just from an ecological point of view, but you know, pure economics, it's not going to work. Then you know, we're, in, we're in this situation where we can drag down our whole societies into this vortex which, of these obsolete industries and these obsolete ways of doing things. And that's the danger. And if you do that, you could end up with, you know, a dark age scenario or something even worse. 
So that's the choice that's that's before us. Let me um, uh, provide an uh, illust- an example that illustrates your point, and I'm not sure the. Albertans are worried about a, a dark age, but uh, in Alberta, which is kind of the Texas of Canada, it's the epicenter of the hydrocarbon economy in, in Canada. Uh, and of course, it's the home of the Alberta oil sands, which makes about three and a half, four million barrels a day of very heavy crude. It's very emissions intense, very carbon intense, but 70 kilograms of CO, CO2 equivalent per barrel, which is, you know, very uh, close to the the uh, most carbon intense crude oil on the planet. So that industry is absolutely convinced uh, that the transition to uh, electric vehicles, electric transportation is decades and decades away. They, and then they've, they've, this is their narrative. And uh, my sources tell me that in the, the corporate boardrooms in Calgary, where these decisions are being made, they're absolutely convinced of this. It's part of the groupthink in Calgary. They don't see; they just simply don't see the transformation of the auto global auto industry from internal combustion engine to electric. They don't see it coming. And so, they, but they do understand the problem with emissions, and they have to get their emissions down. So they've asked the the federal government. They said, "Okay, we'll 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 get our uh, we'll get to net zero by 2050, like you want, uh, Canadian government. But you have to give us 50 billion dollars to to subsidize our, 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 this system of carbon capture, utilization, and storage." And nobody has done a study. Nobody has modeled whether as we get to peak oil demand and then demand uh, begins to decline, uh, the, whether or not these oil companies can remain competitive, because they might not. Then in fact, there's a very good chance that beyond 2030, uh, you know, between 2030 and 2040, some or all of them will become very uncompetitive. And so this, the, the Canadian government is, you know, governments are, are you know, because Alberta and Saskatchewan are thinking about it too, are looking at putting money into this. And if, they're, if they make the wrong bet, if they bet on the old, you know, basically producing heavy crude to make f- fuel, then they look at collapsing the Alberta economy in worst case scenario. I mean, that, that's, it's a plausible argument. Whereas what we've been arguing at Energy Media is they should be looking at, they're just two years away from perfecting a process to turn bitumen instead of into fuel, turn it into feedstock for carbon fiber manufacturing. So you can now take this, this material that is just the absolute worst feedstock for refineries, and you could make something, you could decarbonize the, the production so it has zero emissions. And then instead of burning it, you make it into materials. And then carbon fiber can then go be, you know, cheap form of carbon fiber can go into the automotive industry, it can go into all sorts of uh, different industries. And I think that illustrates the, the, the point that you were making is that how we perceive this system and the choices that we make c- can have potentially catastrophic uh, consequences, or if we make good choices, they could actually set us up to be more prosperous, more sustainable, more environmentally sound as we head in, you know, to the 2040s, 2050s and beyond. I think it's very important to recognize that there is this wonderful, empowering possibility space that's emerging with these disruptions that are taking place. 
You know, I think we've seen that, you know, in energy transport and food, what we're, what we're seeing is, is something very unique and very unusual. You know, we've, we've never seen anything like this before. That we have the possibility emerging, not with breakthrough technologies of the future, but existing technologies which are scaling right now are going to give us the capability to, to provide energy for ourselves cleanly, to, you know, an, an abundant supplies of energy. You know, we have the concept of superpower, uh, as you know, you know the, 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 the right optimal combination of solar, wind and batteries can actually produce far more energy, you know, three to five times more energy than the, the existing energy systems, but again, 10 times cheaper. That is a tremendous uh, opportunity space. And imagine being able to have, you know, being able to produce uh, you know, proteins, program nutritious proteins, make them widely available, cheaply available, and be able to produce them from anywhere. Um, it, it, a fraction of the energy cost, a fraction of the water, a fraction of the land, um, you know, and again, you know, cheap transport and so on and so forth. So we're talking about the possibility of moving into a situation where suddenly, due to technology, we have tools by which we can actually meet all our basic material needs, our fundamental needs so cheaply, we could create untold of prosperity. You know, this, this, is, this is, a, it is a utopian possibility space. It looks utopian, but, what, but it's not utopian. It's actually purely looking at the economics of these existing technologies and how they can scale and disrupt and understanding the cascading effects of those technologies and the various ways they will impact society that allows us to see that, wow, okay, there's this amazing opportunity space opening up. And of course, we just have to remind ourselves by looking back, you know, go back to the era of the horses. Who would have thought after thousands of years of going around with horses that suddenly you could have this massive abrupt change within 13 years, you have the internal combustion engine and it literally changed everything. You know, our transport, our logistics, how we eat, how we, you know, how we move around, how we fight war, how we design our cities. It was so instrumental. People, you know, a millennia ago would have had no idea of the possibility space that exists for now. And that's happening right now. And it's not happening just in one sector, in every sector of the economy. So understanding that possibility space is really important. And that perhaps that puts us in a position where we can say, okay, this is worth us making those right decisions, they're difficult decisions. We have to let go of the old mindset. We have to let go of things that we're very comfortable and familiar with. We're very familiar and comfortable with the oil and gas industry and the coal industry and, and other conventional things and internal combustion. These things, you know, they make sense to us, but we have to realize when they're going to be part of the, these things are going to be relics of history within about 20 years. We have to start looking ahead. I think there, is, and I know this sounds utopian and, and of course that's a, a dismissive term, but that's, yeah, that's how you dismiss the, this argument. Oh, it's pie in the sky. Never going to happen. It's, it's too idealistic. But a colleague and I are writing an op-ed in which, and we, we, we look at the, uh, we look at youth, you know, the 18 to 30 or 35-ish uh, demographic who are saying, we're telling pollsters, we're really anxious about the future. We're really upset because, you know, this is our, our legacy is going to be, you know, an overheated planet uh drought uh food crises uh pollution I, I mean you know the generation that came before us uh is now this is what we're being bequeathed and uh, we're going to argue in this op-ed 
that in fact, because of the disruptions that we've been talking about in, in this interview, is in fact, there is, not today maybe, but in 10 or 15 years, 20 years, there is a reality, a possibility, a utopia coming that could be so much better, so much cleaner, prosperous, so sustainable than what we have now. And, and it, it's like that generation needs that hope. They need a hope and optimism, a narrative to, and because we don't have it, in part, that explains the rise of populism, authoritarian populism like Donald Trump in the US. And we have the conservative parties here in Canada that are trying to, to, trying to imitate Trump. And, and, and so I'm, I know the, the, uh, the old scholar in me chafes at, at the idea of a utopian narrative, but I can see that we need one. And if for no other reason than the generation behind us uh, needs hope. Well, what's, what's, what's interesting for us, you know, we're a technology forecasting think tank. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with data, we're dealing with science, you know, we've been developing a, a you know, kind of a scientific framework to really un to understand how technology disruptions work and how they change things. And we're just looking at data, we're looking at facts, you know, and a lot of our predictions have turned out to be true. And when we think X was talking about EVs a few years ago, people were like, nah, not really. And now they're like, now they're coming back to us and they're saying, well, you guys are right. I mean, it's already, we're past that point now. It's, it's taking over, you know, and, and people are still saying, oh, it's going to take this long, but they're now realizing that it's happening way faster than they anticipated. Um, so look, I mean, we're, we're, our analysis is not, it, it's not that this is a utopian pipe dream, but that just looking, looking at what's happening now, we are at, our civilization is arriving at this bifurcation point. There, there is a fundamental transformation in the production system of our civilization that's, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. And one of the reasons why we are facing all of this chaos is because of the, of the, the dissembling of the old system. That, you know, it's becoming more expensive. It's getting through a, a vicious cycle. And again, the dynamics of disruptions can explain this. We talk about virtuous cycles in the disruptive industries connected with the vicious cycles in the, in the old industries. You know, they go through these feedback loops and you get these, these kind of higher returns in, in, in the new sectors and the older ones start to collapse and they start to go through um, diminishing returns and so on and so forth. And of course, so many of these industries are intertwined with our social and political and economic systems is that we're experiencing that and sometimes it erupts geopolitically you know for instance tony and jamie had predicted that there was going to be a big kind of conflagration to do with russia uh, and they predicted this in 2016 they said it's going to be in the 2020s and they said this to, in front of a, a military think tank in the united states they saw something coming. They didn't know the exact contours of it, but they realized that at some point Russia would be faced with these pressures and would end up taking a kind of a regressive view of how it would shore up its power, which it's now doing. So we're at that point where we can really see these, these options kind of unfolding. But the really important thing is to recognize the possibilities. And these are not pie in the sky possibilities. We're, rec we're seeing that there are these existing technologies which, which can offer us greater capabilities much cheaper than ever before. And this shouldn't really surprise us. It's only, it's only you know, when we look back at history, 
let's just go back to the dawn of time and think about how people at the beginning of time might have looked at our capabilities today. They, and if anyone said that this is what's going to be possible, they would have laughed. What, you'll be flying around in the sky? Not possible. So I think it's important to, to realize that actually we've come a long way. Yes, we're at a point where we're doing a huge amount of damage to our environment. And it could, you know, if we don't make the right choices now, some of, some of those processes could be, you know, they could pose an existential crisis. That's the situation we're seeing. We don't want to, we're not underestimating the scale of the danger that we see before us. But it's very important to recognize that the scale of possibility and opportunity is not pie in the sky. It's grounded in solid data and a solid understanding of the technologies that exist today. And just looking at the possibility spaces that they will open up. That's, that's the key, I think, to navigating our future. Nafiz, this has been a fascinating discussion, and uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to come back to you for uh, interviews on a regular basis because I'd like to explore this further. So, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I really appreciate being on the show. Thank you.